real wise guy. <laughs> Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Brian and I'm an alcoholic. And New York sends its love. <clears throat> Before I get wound up, I'd like to say uh, thank Pat and Karen and Ed and the committee for having me here. It's, it's a real pleasure. On my own, I would never have made El Paso. As they say in the book, beyond your wildest dreams, believe me. <laughs> you know, I was just sitting there, ladies and gentlemen, uh, thinking, on my bended knees, I thank the Almighty God that I did not stop drinking before I made it into AA. What a tragedy it would have been in my life if I had stopped drinking, stayed stopped, and never heard of AA. I mean, what would I have done with my sober life if I never made it in? I would have never had the feelings that I do now, the outlook that I do, I, uh, the love that I, I receive and give if I never made it into AA. I was just thinking, if I never made it into AA, I would have picked myself off the floor after my last drunk, cleaned up my act, went back to work, and that would have been about the size of it. I was a good worker, always a good worker, known as a, as a good worker, did the work of two men all the time. And my life would have... It would have gotten somewhat better, but what would I have done with all the drunken years behind me? I'm the sum total of all my experiences. I remember that one slogan I had read somewhere, I have met the enemy and the enemy is me. And that's it. I would have just put the cork on the enemy and I went about my life without you. Without the steps, without this program, without me. I would have went out to my... First of all, I could not even imagine, I could not even imagine my sober, my life without being a drunk. I mean, when I found out that I was an alcoholic, it was the first time in my life that my life made sense. Of course, that's what it was, you know? <laughs> of course. I swear to God, I was 38 years old when it finally, when the message finally came to me. For the first time when I admitted I was an alcoholic, for the first time in my life, it made sense. And I could not have been me if I had not been a drunk and if I had not sobered up in Alcoholics Anonymous. I cannot be the man that I am here today. I come from New York on the Upper East Side and in an area called Yorkville. And it was all immigrants from the first generation. It was all immigrants, hard workers, hard drinkers, hard fighters. And I don't remember the first time I picked up a drink, ladies and gentlemen. But I do remember the first time I had a blackout. Somehow looking back over my life... I seem to be able to remember more things about growing up as a boy than I can most things as a man. I can remember certain things with pinpoint accuracy as a boy, more, much more clearer than I can many things as a man. And I remember this time, it was a Saturday afternoon, a friend of mine, Johnny, and I, I was 13 years old. We had some money in our pockets from Hustle and the newspapers and the saloons the night before. And I remember going into the back of this vacant building and it was a whole camp of winos passed out. And I remember shaking this one guy, giving him a high sign, and he got up and he came out, and I gave him enough money to go get his three bottles of Sneaky Pete. In those days, I think Muscatel Five Star was going for about 27 cents a pint. And I remember this, he was one of the most handsomest men I could ever remember. He stood about six foot two, he had jet black curly hair, big blue eyes. The most it could have been was anywhere from about 28 to 33 years old. And here he was, an old, old, young, dirty man, doing the, the bidding of uh, two 13-year-olds. And I remember three years prior to that, at the end of the Second World War, at a block party, one of the biggest parties New York had thrown for the returning soldiers and sailors and marines and wax and waves and bands and merchant seamen. I remember Mayor LaGuardia 
And all the hoi polloi in New York and the big mucky mucks and the godfathers, they were all trying to get around this guy to have their photograph taken because he was a war hero. Tokyo Rose had mentioned his name on a program a couple of times that had a specially scout, Japanese scouting group going out trying to kill him, that he was causing such havoc on his own. And here he was, an old, young, dirty man, doing the bidding of two 13-year-olds. And he made the running to come back, and he got his pint, and he scurried back into the building. And Johnny and I went back in the building to the vacant lots, and I cracked my pint. Johnny cracked his pint. We started drinking, and we're laughing and giggling and body punching and arm wrestling. We knocked off the two pints. I remember digging a wine a while again. He made the run again. And I remember cracking that second pint. It was about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And I cracked that pint. And I put the pint to my mouth. And the next thing I knew, I come out of a blackout. My mother had my head over the kitchen tubs. I was throwing up all this wine into the tubs. My two brothers were leaning over. They were punching the hell out of me, screaming at me, where had I been all day? Because the neighbors came in and told my mother that her son, Brian Boy, was drunk. And he staggered all over the neighborhood. And my mother was out and the neighbors were out and he scurried the whole neighborhood. And they didn't find me till about 11 o'clock at night. And I just couldn't tell them where I had been. I mean, one minute is 2 o'clock in the afternoon when I put that pint to my mouth. And here it was at 11 o'clock at night. And I just didn't know. Now, this wasn't the first time I had gotten drunk. But this was the first time I pulled a blank. This was the first time something else happened in my drink. Because I had been drunk many a time at these block parties and these keg parties and the street parties in New York. But this was the first time I pulled a blank. And there was something exciting about it, ladies and gentlemen. It was something, I mean, manly. It was like the original Back to the Future yesterday. I mean, one minute you're there and next minute, boom, you're in the fifth dimension and you're fighting and you're bloodied and you come back and you don't know where the hell you've been. I mean, there was something manly about it. I remember walking up the neighbor and one of the saloon, uh, saloon owners had come walking down and I remember I stopped him. I know him. I saw papers in his saloon and shined shoes there when I was a little younger. And I remember looking up at him and I'm explaining to him what had happened because this pulling this blank, this blackout, there was something that, that, that I wanted to find out about. And I was explaining the story, and when I finished, he said to me, Kid, were you drinking? I said, yeah, yeah, I was drinking. He said, were you drunk? I said, yeah, yeah, I was drunk. And he just leaned back and shrugged. He didn't say anything. He just gave me this big shrug, tossed my hair, walked around me, and kept walking. It seems like all my life I've been born and raised what I would call this alcoholic shrug. I've seen it all the time. I walk into a bar. There wouldn't be a soul in a bar. I said, where the hell is everybody? They say out about looking for Joe's car. He doesn't know where he parked it last night. You'd be going up and down looking for the car. And somebody say, was Joe drinking last night? And they say, yeah. They say, was Joe drunk last night? And they say, yeah. They just lean back and shrug and go about their business. Never said anything. I'd walk into the bar. They'd say, Mary's crazy. She's hysterical. She's on the phone. She's calling up. She doesn't know where she left the children. And somebody says, is Mary drinking? They say, yeah. Is Mary drunk? They say, yeah. They just shrug. Didn't say anything. Now, when I was 14, when I was, uh, when I was 14, you had to be 16 to get in the pool room. And that's where all the action was. That's where the big guys hung out. So I broke into the church rectory. I robbed a whole pad of baptismal papers along with the church seal. I forged my papers, made myself 16. I sold off the rest. Now, when I was 16, you had to be 18 to get your Siemens papers without your parents' consent. So using my phony papers, I got my Siemens papers. I just turned 17. I ran away and I went to sea. And no matter where I traveled in the world, a shrug followed me. It was like some kind of international voodoo or, or juju. No matter where I was, I remember my first trip, I was in, in a nightclub in Singapore. And I got into a fight and I got pretty bad cut up and pretty bad beat up. And they came and they took me to the hospital where they stitched me up and then they took me and they literally threw me in a hole. Now in those days, Singapore was still a British crown colony. And I remember when they took me out of the hole, 
and they put me in the dock and I looked like one of these punk rockers or one of these wrestlers, half of the head was shaved like a mohawk and stitched up, the rest of the hair was all pointed and discolored, my face was all, and the stitches stuck to my shirt, I was a mess standing there in the docket. And in those days, Singapore was a British crown colony, and sitting up there was the judge with a big white curly wig on, a black flowing robe, and representing me was the American consulate. And I remember the magistrate leaning over saying to the American consulate, he says, was that bloke drinking? And the American consulate leaned over to me and he said, were you drinking? And I leaned over and I looked at the American consulate, eyeball to eyeball, one American to another. And I said, was I drinking? I said, of course I was drinking. You don't think I look like this sober, do you? I said, what the hell kind of an American do you think I am anyway? I said, of course I was drinking. They're drinking. We're all drunk. So he looked up and he said, yes, your magistrate, the bloke was drinking. And the judge went like this here. The American council went like that. The captain went like that. I went like that. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that's the story of my life in a nutshell. It was just one shrug after another. That's where alcohol took me. It reduced me and my life to a human shrug. They said the ship sailed for Panama last night. Was Brian aboard? The ship came back from Panama. Was Brian aboard? Is Brian going to jail? Did Brian go home last night? Whatever happened to that nice girl Brian was going with? Where the hell is Brian? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, that's, that's, that's it. About 1969... I was on a mean drunk. I was in a bad drunk. And I come out of the, out of, out of the drunk and I'm weaving. I'm talking on, on his phone. And I'm weaving in and out. And I'm listening to this voice at the other end of the phone. And the voice is saying, take it easy, Brian. Take it easy. Give us your address and I'll send a couple of men over to talk to you. I couldn't quite figure out who this guy was that wants to send a couple of men over to talk to me. So I kept throwing words out, hoping maybe he'd bite and I could fill in around a sentence and figure out who the hell he was. He kept saying, take it easy, Brian. Give us your address. I'll send a couple. I said, wait a minute, hold on. What do you mean send a couple of men over to talk to me? I said, who the hell are you? He says, I'm so-and-so from Intergroup. Now, if you never heard the word Intergroup before, you have to admit, it sounds like some kind of a communist word. You know? <laughs> I said, Intergroup? I said, what the hell are you talking about, Intergroup? I said, who the hell are you? He says, I'm from Intergroup, Alcoholics Anonymous, Intergroup. I said, Alcoholics Anonymous, Intergroup? I said, how the hell did you get my number? He said, you just called us up. I said, I call you up. What the hell would I call you up for? He said, take it easy, Brian. Give us your... I said, you hold it right there, buster. Don't you be sending anybody around my house starting trouble. You want something, I'll give you a punch and a push. That's what I'll give you. I hung up the phone. I sat down on the bed and the sweat started pouring off me. My mind kept running back and forth. In retrospect, trying to figure out what in God's name did I do this time that intergroup would be after me. I mean, the only thing I knew about Intergroup was the old Second World War movies, you know, Jimmy Cagney, Humphrey Bogart, and in those movies, when an Intergroup was after you, it meant one thing, you know? So I put the light out, and I sat there quiet, then I got up, and I peeked out the keyhole, thinking maybe I see an Intergroup guy in the hallway. I crept across the floor, and I leaned up against the wall, and I pulled the curtains aside, and I searched out the doorways and the light lamppost across the street, thinking maybe I'd see an Intergroup guy spying on me up there. 1970, I was on another drunk, a real mean one. I mean, this was a wicked drunk. And I come off, I, I come out of a phone, and here I am talking to this voice again. And the voice tells me where the meeting is. And the meeting was Butterfield and 72nd Street between 3rd and 2nd Avenue. And I went to the meeting. And the only thing I heard at the meeting was stay out of one bar, one bar at a time. 
Now, I'm sure what the man was saying was stay away from one drink, one drink at a time. But the way I had heard it was stay out of one bar, one bar at a time. I swear to God. I walked out and walked up to 3rd Avenue. I squared away my shoulders and I walked from 72nd Street and 3rd Avenue to 93rd Street and 3rd Avenue. And there were bars to the right and saloons to the left and beer gardens. And I was a man on a mission. I walked straight ahead. I walked into one of these bars that I drank in. I ordered up my usually sobering up drink, which was a large club soda with a big twist of lemon. I'm standing at the bar. Next thing I feel my body starting to shake and wind up. And boom, I went into a fit. When I come out of the fit, it was in the enamels with a friend of mine, Jackie, and his big attendant. And he's kneeling on top of me, and he got something in my mouth. And I hear the sirens. I don't know where the hell I am. And this guy's on top of me, sticking this thing in my mouth. And I panicked, and I grabbed him. I rolled him over. I got on top of my side, pounding the shit out of him. He screamed to the, to, the, uh, to the driver to stop the ambulance. The ambulance came to a screech and halt. The guy came running around, opened up the door, looked in to see what the hell was going on. I ran over, gave him a kick in the puss. I jumped down, hit the ground running. I took off. Jackie ran over. He kicked him in the puss. He hit the ground. Well, he took after. I'm running up this block. Jackie's chasing me. I'm running down this block. Jackie's chasing me. I spotted a bar. I go running into the bar. Jackie comes running into the bar. I'm huffing and puffing in the bar. Jackie's huffing and puffing. I grab him aside. I said, Jackie, what happened? God damn it, man. What happened? What was all that about? What happened? He says, I don't know. <laughs> he says, you come in the bar. He says, you're standing there. You went into some kind of fit. Now, the only thing I could attribute that fit to was this intergroup anonymous, you know. <laughs> I mean, they told me stay out of one bar, one bar at a time. I pass all these bars. Nothing happens to me. I go in one stinking bar and I woke up in an ambulance. I remember ordering a drink and I said to Jackie, with wonder, I said, God, no wonder those people are anonymous. <laughs> I mean, they could kill you in broad daylight and never leave a fingerprint. I said, that's it with this intergroup anonymous stuff, Jackie. I said, they had one crack at me, they goddamn near killed me. I said, that's it with that. In, 19, in 1969, I was on a ship. We were about uh, four days out of uh, the Suez Canal. We're in, uh, on our way to uh, Naples, and I was drinking, come off watch. I had booze stashed all over the ship where we broke in and robbed it out of the holes. And uh, I'm drinking, and my folks, and all of a sudden, the word comes down, and batting down the hatches, dog down the portholes, and a storm is coming up. And I'm drinking in the room there, and somehow, I don't know why, I thought the storm was looking for me. And all of a sudden, the storm hitting the ship, it's starting to rock and roll and pitch, and, you know. And I'm getting madder and madder and madder. I said, I don't run from anybody. You want me, you got me. I got the pot. I open the door. I go out and deck it. And the wind is blowing and the sea is coming. I'm laughing and king and peeing against it and throwing punches against it and spitting against it. And it's slamming me all over the place. And the wave picks me up, slams me up against the housing and breaks my shoulder. Well, they wanted to take me off in Egypt. And I figured, oh, the hell with that. I'm not getting off in Egypt. I mean, if I can hang it and tough it out for another four or five days, we'll be through the canal and up into Naples. So... I hung it, hung tough. They took me up in Naples. They had me in the hospital for about three days. They put me in a body cast and one of these with the big bar underneath the arm. Now I hadn't drank it about a week, you know, maybe ten days. And the agent came, picked me up, and we get in the train from Naples all the way to Rome in the car. It takes me out to the airport. We get to the airport. There's about a two-hour layover. And uh, I said to the guy, I said, look, you married? He says, yeah. I said, look, you got any kids? I said, yeah. I said, look, I, I don't need a babysitter. I said, the ship is, I mean, the plane is right there. I says, uh, I'll just get some postcards and write home and let the boys know what's going on. Good. Go back and spend some time with your family. He left. I'm sitting there at the bar. I'm starting to write postcards and I'm looking. I ordered a cappuccino. Then I turn around and tell the bartender, hey, come by. Here, you know. Throw a little cappuccino. Throw a little brandy in there. Throw a little, I'm sucking up the juice at the bar. 
I'm drunk on the plane. By the time that gangway hit New York and Kennedy Airport and the gangway come down, I come off that gangway like a, a drunken runaway construction boom. I'm banging in the people that ducking. I'm going. I fell in the, the escalator. The bar jammed. There's sparks are coming out. People falling all over on top of me. In 1970, my next ship, we're about three days out of Seattle, bound for Japan. I'm drinking, got booze stashed all over the ship. I know everybody got the person selling me the booze. And uh, working down, batting down a hatch, the storm is coming up. And I'm saying, you know, that storm, Jesus, no matter where I go, that goddamn storm is after me. I said, well, I'm going to square this away once and for all. The storm hits, I'm out there in the deck with the bottle half and peeing against it, spitting against it. So a wave picks me up, slams me up against the housing and shatters the lower part of my back. So they had me belly down until we get into Japan. And they took me off and they had me in a hospital where they operated on me. They had me there for 16 days. And the agent comes, he picks me up, and he t- now we gotta go all the way from Yokohama all the way to Tokyo, there's a long trip in the train, and, 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 and the car, and to get me out, it's about a two hour layover, I said to the guy, you married? He said, yeah, I said, you got kids, I said, look, I don't need, I don't need a babysitter, I'm a grown man, I said, I'll just get some postcards, let the boys know what's going on, go ahead. So I'm sitting there at the bar, and I see the kettle there, and I say to the bartender, hey, uh, put the kettle on, heat up a little sake, yeah, a little sake, I'm sucking up the juice at the bar, I'm drunk as hell on a plane. I passed out when I came to. There's a big puddle of blood all over the seat where the drain had come out and I was hemorrhaging on the plane. So they got me in the back of the plane with my pants down and they wiped me down. They had to borrow one of those big old-fashioned Kotex and packed me with the Kotex. And by the time, by the time the plane got to Anchorage, Alaska, I had to get my, my clothes out for a change of clothes and I'm home. I get back to New York about the second day. I'm thinking about what's going on. I figured, man, the hell with this going to see? Seems like every time I go to sea, there's a whole school of angry Moby Dicks out there waiting for me. You know, I don't mind going to sea, but I don't want to die over it. And I figure that out. So I went back working in the tunnels. I'm a retired sandhog. And for those of you who don't know what the New York sandhogs, we're the compressed air workers. We're the miners in New York. The ones that build the the, uh, the caisson for the bridges and the compressed air and the tunnels. And I went working in the tunnels. In 1971, uh, I was passed out my apartment. I was on a drunk and a mean drunk, it was a mean one. And uh, there was banging at the door, banging at the door, banging at the door. And I hear the, the shops do it, the union shops do it. You know, open up the door, Brian, open it up for crying out loud, I'll kick it in and open it up. I got open, I opened the door. I said, man, keep your voice on. What are you, let the whole neighborhood know my business? What the hell are you doing? He came in the apartment and went, phew, man, this place stinks. What the hell are you doing? He went up and he opened up the windows, turned the light. He looked around and he said, my God, what the hell are you doing? There was bottles and booze. I mean, I was on his drunk. I said, what are you, what are you complaining about? I'm just having a couple of drinks. He said, a couple of drinks? He said, how long do you think you've been having a couple of drinks? And I sort of remember people coming and going. Maybe I went out a couple of times. I said, I don't know, about a week. He said, you've been on this drunk six weeks. He said, when the hell are you coming back to work? I can't keep covering your job. I was the dynamiter on the job. He said, when the hell are you coming back to work? I said, what's today? He said, today's Wednesday. I said, all right. I said, I'll be back Monday. He said, Brian, please. I said, look, you can take book on it. I'll be back Monday. Because I knew in my life, all I ever needed to come off a drunk was three days. Usually, no matter where I was in the world, I could hold up somewhere. All I needed was a floor, toilet, and water, and, and, and silence. And you go through the whips and the wingles and the jingles and the horrors and the runs. And usually, it took about three days to get the badness out. And I got all the badness out. I went back to work Monday. And I went back to work seven in the morning, I called for the dynamite, I loaded 300 sticks of dynamite on the cage, I'm dropping 850 feet down to the tunnel level, and uh, I just, I just approached the compression chamber, and once the dynamite is in the compression chamber, on the other side of the tunnel, all the lights, all the electricity is shut off. So when you get on the other side, there's no electricity, 
Everything is done by flashlights, headlights, or airlights. And the men are waiting up there. We approach the heading. They start loading the dynamite. And I went into a fit. And everybody's saying, what the hell is going on? What's going on? They say, I don't know. It's Brian. Where is he? He's over there. No, no, he's over there. They said, watch out. You're standing on him. And I'm flopping all over. I'm pulling out the, the dynamites. And so they call out for an ambulance. And the ambulance heard something about the dynamite. And there was a lot of, a lot of dynamiting and going on in New York at the time. They call the bomb squad when I come out. They had flak jackets, big bats. They had me tied down on a stretcher. I peed my pants. I was in bad shape. I come up. So they wouldn't let me go back to work claiming I was an epileptic. And they're an epileptic. They won't let you work in the tunnel, especially with dynamite or maybe running a motor or something. You're thinking, you know, you wipe out half of the, half of the tunnel. So they, I had to go to Lenox Hill Hospital for a whole series of uh, brainwave scans and epileptic tests, which I did. And I went through all the tests, and a couple of days later, I'm sitting outside the neurosurgeon's office, and he stuck his head out. He goes, Mr. Mines? I went like that. He gave me the high sign. I got up, and I walked into his office. And just before I walked into his office, I stopped. And I took a big, deep breath. And I walked into his office, and he's shuffling around the charts and all the graphs. And he said, well, Mr. Mines, he says, everything here looks pretty negative. And I heard the word negative, and I, I let my breath out just a little bit. And I said, what do you mean negative, doctor? And he said, well, here, everything here looks pretty good. Now, let my breath out just a little bit more. And I said, to mean to say, doctor, I didn't have an epileptic fit in the tunnel? He said, no, you didn't have an epileptic fit. He said, you had an alcoholic fit, an alcoholic seizure. I said, then I'm not an epileptic. He said, no, you're an alcoholic. I said, oh, thank God, thank God. <laughs> I hugged him and kissed him. I mean, what the hell did I care about being an alcoholic? As far as I was concerned, any man worked the salt was an alcoholic. So I had to put him in writing. He put it in writing and went back to the job. I saw the safety engineer and I threw it on his desk and I said, here, here I am and I'm an alky, not an epi. Here it is. Alcoholic. So he says, oh, you're an alcoholic, huh, Brian? I said, yeah. He says, so am I. I said, no kidding. He says, you're going back to work? I said, yeah. He said, you want a drink? I said, sure. We closed the door. He pulled out a bottle. We started sucking on a bottle. They called for the dynamite. They got on the cage going down the tunnel level and life was good. I mean, God, life was good. I was back to work. They couldn't fire me. I'm only an alky. I just found a newfound friend with a bottle tucked away. I mean, life was good. Well, there was a friend of mine, Joe. Joe and I were born and raised together, went to sea together, and now we're working the tunnels together. He had been sober in AA for seven years. He had heard about me and all the trouble I was in. And he came up to the house, and he had been 12-stepping me all this time. And he said, look, Brian, why don't you come to an AA meeting with me? And this time I agreed. And the only reason I agreed is because I just couldn't seem to get a handle on these convulsions. I mean, every time I was coming off a drunk and I was convulsing in subway platforms in the middle of the street, now I'm on a job and I'm in a lot of trouble. And I agreed to go. And at the meeting, I heard the speaker stand up there and he guaranteed it's impossible to get drunk if you don't pick up the first drink. He guaranteed it's impossible, impossible to get drunk if you don't pick up the first drink. And as the meeting broke, I made a beeline for the stairs. Everybody stopped. And he started to say to our father. And I was in the stairway and I'm looking down and I'm searching. I was shocked. And there's my friend Joe. He had his eyes hooded and he had holding two fingers and he's rocking back and forth saying to our father. And I said to myself, ah, oh, Joe, what the hell did they do to you, Joe? I mean, here was a man who was born and raised, went to sea, and here he is now rocking to Jesus and Psalm singing with the best of them. Well, anyway, we come out, we go for coffee. And all the people from AA is coming in, they're starting to fill around. I'm sitting there and I, I leaned over and I said, Joe, how long are you in AA? He said, seven years. I said, Joe, just between you and me. I mean, we're buddies. We go back a long way. I said, Joe, did you understand that man back there when he stood up and he told you it's impossible to get drunk 
If you don't pick up the first drink. Did you understand that, Joe? And Joe says, yeah, sure, I understand it. I said, Joe, please, think deep down in the caverns of your bowels, Joe. Do you really understand it's impossible to get drunk if you don't pick up the first drink? Joe says, sure, I understand it. What are you trying to say? I said, what I'm trying to say, Joe, is of course it's impossible to get drunk if you don't pick the, up the first drink. Of course they're guaranteeing you. That's like me guaranteeing you if you don't leave the house tomorrow, you won't get run over by a truck. Can't you see, Joe? You're being bullshitted, man. You're throwing good money in a basket full of happy horseshit. He said, look, Brian, here's the meeting book. Try 90 days, 90 meetings. Try 90 days, 90 meetings. I looked at it and I pushed the book back to him. I said, Joe, maybe you don't mind sitting there in the front row, humped over, squinting up the speaker, slurping your lips for sobriety like some kind of AA Quasimodo. I said, Joe, that isn't my idea what being a man is all about. What happened to you, Joe? What happened to your pride? And Joe said, look, mine, please, try 90 days, 90 meetings. Try to make another meeting. And I said, Joe, I'm your buddy. Listen to me, Joe. I'm telling you once and for all, if you keep hanging around with those people over there, you're going to be here for another seven years. <laughs> Just then the bells from the church started ringing. I broke out laughing. I said, Joe, you better get back there. Somebody got your job. <laughs> now, that was in the fall of 71. And I went through all the holidays, all the holidays without picking up a drink. All the holidays, never picked up a drink. Back in the job, wheeling and dealing. Back in the saloons, back with the women, wheeling and dealing. And I live in 86th Street at the time I was living there. And I come from Yorkville. And that's where the St. Patrick's Day parade breaks up. And every year... Hundreds and hundreds of people from the neighborhood, from that whole neighborhood come, and it's like a reunion, all the way from 3rd Avenue, both sides of the street, to Park Avenue, both sides of the street. And my nieces came in from West Chester, and I remember walking up toward the parade. I hadn't drank now, you know, since maybe, maybe four months. And I'm walking up, and I had a camel head coat on with a big green tie, and a Russian cassock hat on with sprigs of shamrock. My nieces are holding my arm, and everybody's waving to me and slapping me on the back, and I'm yelling at the marchers. I know half of them. And I uh, get up to where my boys hung out. They're passing a bottle. The bottle comes to me. I, I start taking a few slugs out of it. And this time, that first drink put me in the grip of the grape for two weeks. This time, the fears were so great, I never left my apartment. For two weeks, I had the doors locked, the windows shut, the drapes uh, drawn, the phone off the hook. Uh, the only phone call I made was a liquor store across the street and had the booze delivered. The only friends and enemies I had was the furniture. And for two weeks, I was totally isolated. And only an alcoholic would understand I loved it. God, I loved it. I mean, I would stand there in the middle of the room, no judgment on me. I'd stand there in the middle of the room with my head thrown up, my chest squared away, the wind gently tussling my hair, my eyes squinting with mirth, searching out the horizon, my nostrils flaring with excitement, my teeth bared with lust, my chest hold slowly heaving, my hands opening and closing with anticipation. I would stand there truly a man of destiny, a man amongst men, all things to women. Jackie and would be kneeling on the ground with her arms around my knees saying, I love you, Brian, please, take the money, take the money. And I'd throw my head back and laugh and say, money, you can't buy a man like me with money. And I'd pick her up and I'd throw her out the door. Next minute, they'd be banging at the door. I'd open it up and be Sophia Lauren. She said, I heard about you, Brian, just once, please, just once. And I'd throw her out and I'd slam the door and I'd yell through the door, why don't you goddamn women leave me alone? Can't you see I'm only human? Leave me alone, goddammit. I'd be standing in the middle of the room huffing and puffing, huffing and puffing because I had just knocked out Muhammad Ali for the heavyweight championship of the world. 
And I would always knock them out March 16th so they would beg me to lead the St. Patrick's Day Parade. And lead it I would. And I could see myself making that wide turn on 5th Avenue and 86th Street. And the Major Dome would be standing there with the stick in the air. And everybody would be screaming, waiting for the champion of the world, Brian, the champ, to be in place. And as soon as I was in place, the Major Dome would bring the stick down. And the fiddles and the screaming and the yelling. And the cops would be on the ground trying to hold back the surging crowd of women. And you hear them yell, there's Brian, my God. That's the champion of the world. There he is, Brian. And every now and then I'd hear a cop say, what a man. What a man. <laughs> well, anyway, April 1st, April Fool's Day, 1972, Intergroup finally came and got me. <laughs> And they carted me off to a detox, and I don't ever want to forget that. They were taking me down the drunk section, and the nurse had one arm, and my brother-in-law had the other arm, and the hair was wild and matted with sweat, and I had a two-week groat in his vomity, dribbly old t-shirt and his pea-stained pair of pants with the fly broken, half-open, half-closed, so I never needed a belt. You just pull them off, kick him in the corner, you pick him up and put him on, and these paint-stained pair of slippers, the right foot on the left, the left foot on the right, and they're taking me down, and right opposite the, uh, the nurse's uh, desk, was the men's lounge. And through the corner of my eye, I saw this guy step out, and he saw the three of us coming down. And he, uh, I could hear him say, Hey, guys, come out and look at this guy, a real wolf man. Take a look at this guy. And they all come out, and they start laughing. And they're, yelling, and they're saying, Don't touch him, nurse. Don't touch him. You get locked jaw. And they all start laughing. Don't anybody breed. We'll get black lung. And they're all laughing. And I remember this one guy saying, Nah, that guy's not real. He's an April Fool's Day. They're just trying to scare us. That guy's not real. This is the first time in my life, ladies and gentlemen, that a man or woman ever laughed at me and I couldn't do anything about it. I remember I was standing there and I had my head down and this soul-sickening voice, this voice that had tortured me ever since I was a child was digging into me, saying, look at them laughing at you. You've been nothing but a disgrace all your life. Isn't there anything you can do right? When the hell are you going to grow up and be a man? You left it, No matter where you sailed in the world, you left an oil slick a mile wide. God damn it, be a man. Don't let them laugh at you. Get your face up. Look at them in the face. And I kept trying to get my head up and look at these people, these guys. But I just couldn't get my head up. It seemed like somebody had used a machete and cut my, all my neck muscles and my back muscles. I just couldn't get my head up. And if there's one thing at that moment I wish I could have done, ladies and gentlemen, and that was to pick, to grab myself by the head of here, yank my face up, and spit right into my face. That's how I felt about myself. It was the second day over my 38th birthday. I was physically, mentally, spiritually bankrupt, financially bankrupt, and sexually bankrupt. I see you now in sobriety that I've been slipping in and out of impotency since I was about 28 years old. And it was, it was, it was tough sexually faking it over the years. I mean, I was a sand hog and I was a merchant seaman and I was a bartender and I'd be working the bar and the guys would be sitting there talking about the girls. And this guy took the girl home last night. He made love two or three times. And the guy over there took the girl home. He made love two or three times. And this guy there, he took the girl home. He made love two or three times. Well, I see now in sobriety that if these guys were taking these girls home, making love two or three times a night, one thing is for sure, they didn't drink what I was drinking, that's for sure. <laughs> you don't drink that crap and go home and make love two or three times. You go home and fall out of the bed two or three times. <laughs> I know for a fact the closest they're going to come to sex that night is when they pee-pee two or three times. <laughs> now, I don't want to believe it is sex thing, you know, but I'm just throwing it out there. I'm just throwing it out there because maybe... Maybe there's some guy out there that kind of knows what I'm talking about. As for the women, they know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and they had me there for five days. 
And they, they told me when you get out, you get a meeting book, get a sponsor. You get up front, you make 90 days, 90 meetings, a meeting book, a sponsor. Joe was waiting for me. I get out, I got a meeting book. I'm sitting up there front, up there in front. And after the speaker, I buttonhole one of the old timers. I get him on the side. And I say, look, just between you and me, nothing to do with these people over there. I said, where did you get this concept of 90 days, 90 meetings? Where did you get 90 days, 90 meetings? How come not 70 days and 60 meetings? Or 60 meetings and 90? How did you, I mean, where did you get 90 and 90? And none of the old timers knew. Not only didn't they know, but they couldn't care less. They said, look, Ryan, we just don't drink a day at a time. We don't pick up the first drink. But stopping to think about 90 days, 90 meetings is not a bad idea. Give you some time to get the fumes, get the rum out of your brain. Not, not a bad idea, but that wasn't good enough. I had to find out where did they get 90 days and 90 meetings because I did not want to make the same mistake twice. I remember when I was a kid in school, I was always being beaten and punished and kept after school over these mystical esoteric numbers. I remember there was the 12 apostles and the 10 commandments and the 12 lost tribes of Israel, the seven deadly sins and the eight wonders of the ancient world and the four winds and the seven seas and the, and Moses was in the desert for 40 years and Columbus was on the Atlantic for 40 days, 40 nights and now me, 90 days, 90 meetings. <laughs> but it didn't take me long. It didn't take me long to figure it out and I finally came to the conclusion that you have to be here 90 days, 90 meetings just to understand what the hell they're talking about. Because there's a very sophisticated way of speaking at these meetings. The topic would be, you see, when you made a decision not to make a decision, you made a decision. Oh my God, what's the bridey? What's the bridey? You see, it's at that very second of not taking the action. That is when you took the action. They go, oh my God, circuit speaker, circuit speaker. The one that got me was, you see, you can't keep it unless you give it away. In fact, you have to give it away to keep it. And the more you give, the more you get. I say to Joe, Joe, what the hell are they giving away? <laughs> they don't work. They're all unemployed. Joe, they're even on alimony. Can't you see? And he says, see what? I said, Joe, can't you see we're being bullshitted? He said, my God, are you still in that kick? And he gets his cigarettes and he gets his coffee. And I see him working his way away. And I say, go ahead, run. Run your stinking AAS kisser. <laughs> I mean, that's all they seem to do around here. Stay away from a drink, come to meetings and kiss ass. I said, let me tell you something, Joey boy. If you had a cold wind blowing through hell, the day they get a man like me to bend over and kiss ass, I'll tell you that. <laughs> and it seems like the first 90 days I kept running into the same cluster of speakers. I would look around, I'd look at the women. Oh, God, my heart was broke. My heart would go out to the women. It seems like their whole life was over. It seems like the whole life now revolved around needle pointing. I mean, every now and then from the back of the room, I hear this big burst of ooing and aahing, and I knew they had just discovered a new floral pattern. And in my mind's eye, I could see them pearl one drop to identify. Pearl one drop to identify. And just pearling, dropping, identify until the menopause, and then on to a death. You know? I said to Joe, oh, Joe, if anybody got the short end of the stick, it's the women. I said, look at them, Joe. You could just look at them and see that they never did anything. And the tragedy is, Joe, they never will do anything now. Their sponsors will see to that. <laughs> and I kept running into the same speakers for 90 days. And I had nicknames for all the speakers. I would nickname them. I said, oh, there's easy, does it, Ed? One day to dine, Karen. First things first, Pat. I had all these nicknames. And this speaker got up there and he introduced him. His name was Charlie. 
And Charlie got up there, and he said, I picked up a drink. I fell down a flight of stairs, and I surrendered. And they all start to applaud, hug him, kiss him, get his autograph, invite him to parties. I sat there stunned. <laughs> he picked up a drink, fell down a flight of stairs, and surrendered. Man, I fell off gangways, bastards, garbage cans. <laughs> and never in a million years would I ever tell a shit story like that in public. <laughs> I mean, he stood up there and told it right in front of the girls. I say, this guy will never get a girlfriend with a story like that. He'd be better off saying he fell up the stairs. I nicknamed the Staircase Jolly. And a week later, they introduced Staircase Jolly again. I said, oh, there's Staircase. And I got up front and I zeroed in on every word that this man had to say. Because it was important to me to find out what kind of a staircase it was that made him surrender. Now, maybe he's going to say he picked up a drink. And he fell down a four-story spiral staircase. Well, yeah, maybe I'll go along with that one. Or maybe he's going to say, I picked up a drink and I fell five stories between the banisters. you got to give him that one. you got to go along with that one. But the way Charlie stood and the way he was dressed and the way he talked, I knew in my heart that this guy was strictly a two-step foyer job. <laughs> and he went into a store and he said, I picked up a drink, I fell down a flight of stairs, and I surrendered. And they all applauded and hugged him, kissed him, invited him to parties. I said to myself, why don't that guy tell a real story? He'd been drinking. He'd been drunk all day. Why don't he tell a real story? You see, they kept telling me, Brian, keep bringing the body. Keep bringing the body. Sooner or later, the head will follow. Here it was a week later, I heard the same story, but this time I heard it a little bit different. And they introduced Charlie a week later. Now, this is the third time within a month I'm hearing the story. I knew it by heart. And I'm sitting there, I'm looking at Charlie, and as Charlie went into the story, as he started getting close to that first drink, I felt my stomach tighten up. And I said, uh-oh. Watch it, Charlie. Watch that drink. And he got close. I said, Charlie, can't you see what you're doing, Charlie? Watch the drink. And Charlie said, and I picked up a drink. And I said, ah, well, grease the banisters. There goes Charlie. <laughs> I know my heart of hearts, ladies and gentlemen. Once Charlie picked up that drink, no way in hell could he beat the staircase. I lay odds from here to Vegas. I just knew that he could not. This was the first time in my life. I was 38 years old. The first time in my life I fully identified with the first drink. With the dynamics. I knew, once he picked up the drink, no way in hell could he beat the staircase. It was a spiritual experience. I understood for the first time, and all in my life just passed, no matter where I was in the world, no matter what it was, the staircase that I fell down, I had always been drinking. I was to hear it put later on. I didn't get drunk. I didn't get in trouble every time I was drinking. But every time I was in trouble, I was drunk. And that, I just put it together, and I kept coming to the meetings, and I stayed away from the closed meetings and the step meetings because of the concept of God. I had walked away from the religion that I was born and raised in at 14, and nobody, especially any of you, were going to start ramming God down my throat. But I happened to be at a meeting when it went into the concept of God. And one said it was this, another said it was that, another said it was this. And I remember this young man raising his hand saying the way he had heard God was G-O-D, good orderly direction. G-O-D, good orderly direction. Ladies and gentlemen, speaking only for myself, when I heard that good orderly direction, it seems like my chest split open and centuries of venom and stinking anger poured out. Now, here was a God that I could understand good orderly direction. As far as I was concerned, that's what God was supposed to be all along, was good orderly direction. But where I came from, how I was raised, I couldn't buy it. But this I could. And remember leaning back, looking at the speaker, and behind the speaker had the slogans. And it said, first things first, keep it simple, let go and let God. In a way I read it was, first things first, keep it simple, let go and let good orderly direction. And I literally turned my will and my life over to care of good orderly direction as I understood it, which was you, AA. And the only thing you were asking of me was to try to stay away from a drink, try to do the best that I can, try to get to a meeting. 
and everything in my life, everything in my life became good orderly direction. It wasn't so much that it was a concept of God because they kept telling me, Brian, don't you ever worry about God. You pick up a drink that won't be sending God to the detox, they'll be sending you to the detox. It's you and that first drink. But the word that got me, ladies and gentlemen, was that word direction. All my life, I had been looking for some type of direction. All my life. I'd be a liar if I stood up here and told you all I ever did was drink and follow up. That's not me at all, ladies and gentlemen. I'd be lying to you. I was always trying to be a man. I was always trying to do the right thing. I was always shining my shoes, trying to put my best foot forward. I was always washing my face, combing my hair, trying to make that first good, long-lasting impression. I was always looking for a job. I was always making amends. I was always trying to pay my bills. There's that saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I picked up that drink with the best of intentions. I was raised a decent man, a decent person. I didn't... I was always... I, I, I go to a wedding sober and I pick up the drink just, just to toast with love and sincerity. And off, and I'm off and running. Always picking up that drink. Shaking like a leaf, picking up the drink, trying to, to set my nerves down, get my hands steady so I can go to work. Always with the best of intentions. And I was always an alcoholic. I was always picking up a drink. I was always and always and always. And here I was in a room full of alcoholics offering me good orderly direction in my life. Now, I may have been everybody's drunk, but I assure you I was never anybody's fool. I knew right then and there if I didn't make it with you, I wasn't going to make it. And everything became good orderly direction. I walk down the street and I see a man dragging a woman out of a cab, dragging her back into a bar because he hadn't finished drinking yet. I see some guy urinating between the two cars, puking up against the wall. Some guy slugging it out in the middle of the street. Some guy getting the shit kicked out of him by a cop. And I say to myself, there, but for the grace of good, all the direction goes on. And it simply made sense to me. Because none of those things were happening to me anymore because I trusted in you. And the only thing you were asking of me was try to stay away from the drink, try to do the best I can, and try to get to a meeting. I, I was still working up in Van Cortland Park. I was about a year sober. And uh, I was working at four to midnight. And I would get up about uh, 11 o'clock or so. I'd have breakfast. And right across the street from where I live was a nightclub. And there was a, a park bench outside of it. And this day I was, I just had breakfast. I'm sitting there. I got a cigarette and I got a container of coffee. I'm sitting there. And all of a sudden I'm looking down. And here comes this little girl, like a little Shirley Temple with her mother. And she's coming up the street, little ringlets and dimple knees. And she spots me. And she comes running up and leaps right up on my lap. And she got this big lollipop. And I'm looking at it. I got a cigarette and a coffee. I'm looking at this kid. And she's pushing the lollipop at me. And I'm looking at it. And the mother comes over and she says, she wants you to lick a lollipop. So I take the lollipop. I put it in my mouth. I make a big fuss. I roll my eyes around. A big slurping. The kid is looking. to take his eyes. She plops it in her mouth. Hops off my lap and starts skipping up the street. And the mother nods at me. And I nod at it. And I'm watching the two of them walk away. All of a sudden, this tremendous feeling of love overcame me. This tremendous feeling, something I had never experienced in my life. And I couldn't quite know what this, what it was. And I kept saying to myself, this is good orderly direction. This is good orderly direction. And I heard myself say to myself, nah, not this time, Brian. This is not good orderly direction. This is the God they've been talking about. This is the God of the rooms. This is the God of sobriety. And I knew it to be true. I just couldn't believe it. Me with God, sitting there with a container of coffee, a cigarette, taste of a child's lollipop, and God. I just couldn't believe it. I was just overwhelmed. And all I could think about, I, I, I said, God, God bless you, God. Like I went over his head to his boss or something. Man, you know, <laughs> the hell do I know about God? I'm just waiting to go to work. 
And I had this wonderful experience, and I was, and everything started to come. The anger was diminishing. I started to see things differently and feel things differently, and I was always active, and I had God and good all the direction going. I was about four years sober when I got a phone call from San Francisco, from the Union Hall, the Siemens Union Hall. And they were taking a bicentennial ship out in 76. They were taking it out of Beth, Maine, and they were going to crew her up with an East Coast crew. And they called me up, and they said, Brian, would like you to be part of the crew. And I hadn't sailed since they flew me back from uh, Yokohama. So I said, yeah, sure. They said, all right, go down, get your Siemens papers, get the inoculations, and about a two weeks' time, we'll be flying a crew up to Maine. I said, all right. And I went and got took care of everything, care of everything. And a friend of mine, is Roy, had been on a drunk. And Ronnie was on his way one morning to pick him up and take him to a detox. And whatever happened, when he got there, he opened the window, he dove out 27 stories. And when he got there, it was a mess. The fire angel was there, the police was there, his wife was there, he had five kids. You know, it was a mess. Now, Roy was half uh, Irish Catholic and half Jewish, and his mother flew in from San Francisco, and had the uh, uh, cremation, and there was a lot of acrimony and finger-pointing and, and uh, argument at the, uh, the memorial of who's going to get the ashes. And uh, Roy had gone to sea, younger with us. And I turned around, I got his sponsor together with his mother and his wife. We sat down, I said, look, I'm leaving in about a week. Why don't you give me the ashes and I'll bury Roy at sea. Give him a seaman's burial. And this was about the only thing they agreed to do. And I went with the uh, with the wife, and I got the ashes. And the captain was notified that there'd be a burial at sea. So we got up to Maine, and then we're on our way to Panama. I ran into the captain, and I mentioned it, and the captain turned around. He says, all right. He says, uh, we'll have the burial when you want it. He says, you have the uh, death certificate, right? I said, no, I don't have a death certificate. I said, I just got the ashes. He said, well, no, you need the death certificate. He said, it's an official burial at sea. He says, I'll tell you what, when you get to Panama... Send a, you know, call up the wife and have her send all the necessary papers to San Francisco and we'll bury him in the Pacific. I said, all right. And I did. She sent all the necessary papers. And before, and the ship sailed. And I ran into the captain and the captain turned around and he said, well, when do you want to hold the service? I said, I don't know, captain. It's up to you. It's your ship. He said, well, no, it's your friend. He says, uh, when would you like to bury him? And seeing that I had a choice, I said, captain, if it's at all possible, I would like to bury my friend on the international dateline. He says, all right, when we get to the international date line, he said, well, bury him. And uh, the day came, and it was a gorgeous night, ladies and gentlemen. It was one of those nights that the Pacific offers up for me, a cathedral of colors. I mean, the sky was just flaming, beautiful, and the sea was like glass, and all of a sudden you could feel the ship slowing down for the burial, and all the passengers came out, and the crew came out. We had the plank. You put the ashes and put the American flag on on top of it. And before I left, I had gotten five long stem roses, one for each one of his children, and I got a yellow rose for his wife. And I stapled them together on the light with the little plastic serenity prayer, so it was like a wreath, and that went on top of it. And the captain had agreed to close the ceremony with the, the Our Father. And all of a sudden, we had the ceremony, picked up the plank, the ashes went over, and the, uh, the flowers after it. All of a sudden, you could feel the ship starting to pick up speed. And all of a sudden, three blasts from the whistle saluting a departed brother. And you could hear everybody breaking out the booze because it was a big celebration. And I, I, I sort of watched uh, walk back aft. And there was a way in the distance in the wake of the ship. You could see the roses tumbling. And I'm looking at it. I'm looking at the, at the sky and the sea and, and this wonderful experience. And I don't know what went through Roy's head when he opened up that window and dove out the window. Drunk, disillusioned, and fearful. But here he wasn't on the international dateline being buried with dignity, with dignity and grace by you and I, by Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I was just overwhelmed with it. I mean, here I was for the first time in my life on the international dateline. I'd been around the world 16 times, not counting all the other ports. And here I was sober. 
burying one of my friends. And I took the longitude and the latitude, and when the ship got to Yokohama, I mailed the, the photographs and the longitude and the latitude to the wife. So to, to this day, at any time she can go to a map, trace out the longitude and latitude and say, this is where my husband was buried. Or the, one of the uh, the kids can go turn around and say, here's where my father was buried. And in time, here's where my grandfather was buried. And not knowing you, not knowing me, ladies, and freely given, freely we serve. You know, what we receive, what we give. And I made meetings all over the world, anywhere I could possibly make one. I came back with the help of the people in a the program. They registered me in Fordham University, working days, going to school at night. I graduated from Fordham University in 1982 with a degree in fine art. And uh, I retired from the tunnels with Black Lung in 1987. And I went out in early retirement. And uh, I did a lot of things drunk, ladies and gentlemen, that I'm ashamed of. And I did a lot of things sober that I'm proud of. But it seems the one thing that I'm the proudest of, the proudest of, is the fact, and uh, which I was the deepest ashamed of, is the fact that I couldn't drive a car. I'm not talking about not having the ability. I'm talking phobia. Phobic about driving a car. Just frightened. And I was running around with a young lady, and one Saturday she came and knocked at the door. I opened the door, and she came and she threw her license up on the desk, on my uh, table. She said, come on, put your shoes on. I'm going to register you in driving school. I said, look. Let's not get into that now. She said, put your shoes on. Let's go. And she literally took me by the hand, walked me to a Yorkville Driving Academy, registered me. And every day before I go to work, there's the guy with the car. And he'd take me for a driving lesson. And they could tell that day when I came into the job that I had a driving lesson because I looked like the Michelin man. I come in, I go, oh, God, I come. I'm all knotted up from fear and the muscles. And friends of mine, in New York, nobody has cars, you know, so friends of mine come out from Brooklyn, from AA, and, and from Queens, and, and they helped me go through the tunnels and over the bridges, and the day came for me to take the, the test, <coughs> which I did, <coughs> and about five weeks went by, and I come home at midnight one night, and I opened up, and there was a, a letter from the motor vehicles, and I remember I went up, and I sat at the kitchen table, and uh, I made myself a cup of tea, and I'm looking at this envelope, finally I opened it up, and there was my driver's license. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, beyond, beyond my wildest dreams, beyond my wildest expectation, there I had a driver's license. I was never one in my life to, to fantasize that I was a great race car driver, or I had a big Cadillac and I used to pick up the girls. Anything with a car, I had nothing to do with. And here I was. I remember tears are flowing down my, my cheeks. I remember getting a towel and putting it in my mouth, afraid that the neighbors would hear me crying. And I had it for about three or four months. And one day came, I don't know why, it was on a Saturday. I got up early, showered, shaved, made myself a cup of tea. And I went up to Avis. And I rented a car. And there was a, a diner out in Rockaway. It's about a 25-mile ride. I, I know that you go over Queensboro Bridge, you go out Queens Boulevard, you make a ride at Northern Boulevard, and you keep going straight, and it'll take you right into this diner. And that's where I wanted to go, to this diner. And I remember I was going across the bridge and I'm driving and the truck driver's going by beeping the horn. Move over, you dumb bastard. And I'm hanging there and I'm going there. And finally I spot this diner. And I remember getting out of the car and the sweat was pouring out of me, pouring out of my shoes. I was soaking wet. And I remember there's three steps that you had to go up to get into the diner. And I was having a hard time getting up the steps because the pants were wet and stuck to my ass. And I'm pulling like this. And I walked in. I sat down at the uh, at the counter. I ordered a cup of coffee. Now, ladies and gentlemen, to this day, that is the proudest moment of my life. To this day, that is the peak moment of my life. They say everybody has 15 minutes of fame. Well, I had three cups of coffee of it. 
I was never so proud as myself. I'm sitting there and I could hear the voice. I could hear myself saying, maybe you can do something right after all. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're not a disgrace. Maybe you can be a man. And I remember getting in the car and I was back in the car out and all of a sudden a voice started digging into me saying, look at him behind the wheel. Look at him backing that car out. Look at him turning the wheel with one hand. What a man. What a man. And I remember I, I came back and I paid Avis and I walked down around the corner, ladies and gentlemen. I leaned up against the wall and that's the last time I drove a car. <laughs> the hell with that, man. I'm telling you. I don't drink. I don't drive, man. And he got me here. He'll get me back. I'm telling you. That's good enough for me. Now, ladies and gentlemen, it's been a wonderful trip. It's been a wonderful trip. I'm retired now. At the end of this month, I'm a senior citizen, 65 years old. Two days after it, after it, I'll be 27 years sober. It's, I'm a college graduate. I'm a college graduate. I have a driver's license. And I wish I could stand here and tell you I finally know what I want to be when I grow up. But the fact is, ladies and gentlemen, in all honesty, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. But I found out it's really not that important to find out what I want to be when I grow up. What is important is to recognize who I am today by recognizing what I am not. I'm not that young man the FBI took off in Mobile, Alabama in handcuffs for near beating a man to death. I'm not that man the FBI took off in New York in handcuffs and stood trial for mutiny. I'm not that man dragging a woman out of a cab by the hair with the head dragging her back into a bar because I hadn't finished yet. I'm not that dirty old young man that's being shuffled into a detox. Thanks to you ladies and gentlemen, I am not a lot of things today. I am not a lot of things. And somehow by seeing the many things that I am not, somehow I begin to see the many things that I am. And when I do have the courage and the wisdom to take a long, hard look, I see the many things that I can yet become if I continue to adhere to this simple program, if I continue staying away from a drink, if I continue reaching out to the alcoholic. Ladies and gentlemen, other than the fact that I haven't picked up a drink today, the greatest statement I could possibly make at an AA meeting is thanks to you and this magnificent program, slowly but surely, I'm becoming the man I drank to be. Slowly but surely, I'm seeing and hearing and feeling and doing all the things that I drank to do. Slowly but surely, I'm becoming me. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you.